Welcome to this peer voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash JCT. This educational activity is supported by an educational grant from the healthcare business of Merck KGAA, Darmstadt, Germany. Welcome to this peer voice panel discussion on recurrent metastatic squamous cell carcinoma of head and neck. This activity comprises three presentations featuring a panel of international experts. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, my name is Kevin Harrington and I'm a professor in biological cancer therapies at the Institute of Cancer Research in London. Welcome to this panel discussion on how to manage recurrent and or metastatic squamous carcinoma of the head and neck when the CPS value is between 1 and 19. Joining me today are my friends and colleagues, Professor Robert Haddad from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in the United States and Professor Jean-Pascal Machiels from Clinique Universitaire Saint-Luc in Brussels in Belgium. In the first part, we will talk about the current guidance in managing recurrent and or metastatic squamous cell carcinoma and discuss the clinical data supporting management decisions. So, Jean-Pascal, maybe I could come to you first. Could you just discuss with us the design of the Keynote 048 study? Hello, everybody. It's my pleasure to be here. So the keynote of 48 trial is a randomized uh, three-arm study uh, for patients in first-line metastatic or recurrent disease uh, with incurable disease. So they randomized uh, 882 patients between three arms. The first arm is pembrolizumab monotherapy, uh, pembrolizumab is given for about uh, two years. The second arm is pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy. And in the chemotherapy arm, you have platinum compound, either carboplatin or cisplatin with 5-FU. And you give the drug, uh, the chemotherapy drug for six cycles. And in patients uh, at least in stable disease, you continue a pembrolizumab. And the third arm, it's the control arm, is cetuximab plus uh, chemotherapy, the extreme uh, regimen. So for the stratification factor, uh, it was the PDL expression status as measured, as measured by TPS. Thanks, Jean-Pascal. Um, now, maybe, Robert, I could ask you just to walk me through this rather complex trial design. Can you give us some of the headline data um, that came from the various populations that were analyzed uh, for the endpoints of this study? Yes, uh, thank you, uh, Kevin. Great to be with uh, with you today and with Jean Pascal. Uh, so, Keynote zero four eight obviously is an important study in our field and has led to a profound change in how we manage patients with recurrent and metastatic head and neck cancer in that first line setting. Uh, what really uh, I would say the top line data from this study and the study essentially the comparison was between Pembro and extreme, and then Pembro plus chemo and extreme. There was not a direct comparison between Pembro and Pembro chemo. And really, the, the, the bottom line data here is that for those patients who have a high CPS, 
especially those patients with a CPS of 20 or more, there was a clear and sustained benefit of the pembrolizumab-containing arms. And that is currently the standard of care for patients with recurrent metastatic head and neck cancer with a high CPS. When the CPS was low in that 1 to 19, we still saw a benefit of the pembrolizumab-containing arms, albeit the hazard ratio were a little bit different in that 1 to 19 group with the pembrolizumab-only arm, and that's something we're going to look at and discuss later today. In the CPS zero arm, around less than 20% of the patients had a CPS of zero or more, so that's not a common occurrence in head and neck cancer. For those patients, pembrolizumab as a single agent is not the appropriate therapy for patients. So there, and we can discuss this later, the real discussion is whether to use the extreme regimen or PEMBRO plus chemotherapy. Thanks, Robert. And now maybe, um, Jean-Pascal, I could ask you just to comment on differences that we see in response rates between pembrolizumab and pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy and how that might influence, as we think looking forwards, how it might influence selection of patients for treatment. Yes, this is uh, very important for the selection of the patient to be aware of this data. So as you can see uh, on this slide, you see that pembrolizumab monotherapy is going to give you an objective response rate of 16.9%. This is lower than what you can obtain with chemotherapy. So in the control arm, in the extreme arm, you have around 36% of objective response rate. And in the chemotherapy plus pembro arm, you have 37% of objective response rate. What is quite important also is the duration of response. And when you give pembrolizumab monotherapy, even if the objective response rate is lower, when you respond, you have a very long response with a median duration of response on 22 months. In the extreme, as a comparison, the duration of response is 4.5 months. When you're factoring um, choices, um, how, does, um, how does the difference in the adverse event profile between the two different uh, experimental regimens comparing, comparing with um, the extreme regimen, how does that stack up? Yeah, this is also important in the, for the choice of the treatment. So as you can see, so the when you have chemotherapy, uh, between 65 to 70% of the patient will have at least a grade 3 or grade 4 adverse event, mostly related to chemotherapy. But when you give immunotherapy alone, you see that the rate of adverse event grade 3, grade 4 is clearly lower. 17 person. So as a statistical point of view, immunotherapy in monotherapy is probably is better tolerated. So something to take into account. Great. Thanks very much indeed. So now I'd like to just drill down a little bit more into the differences between the various CPS groups, less than 1, 1 to 19 and greater than or equal to 20. Um, because we have those data available now. And maybe I could ask you, Robert, just to give us some of the data and some of the thought processes when thinking about the comparison of pembrolizumab monotherapy versus the extreme regimen, please. Really what this is telling us that if your CPS is zero, 
you should not be using single agent pembrolizumab because it does appear from the data that's shown here that the median overall survival is inferior at 7.9 months compared to the extreme regimen at 11.3 months. So I think that point, if you have a patient with a CPS of zero, you should not be using single agent monotherapy pembrolizumab. Obviously, if your CPS is more than 20, you can see there that it's clearly beneficial to give single agent pembrolizumab. So not a lot of debate there. If your CPS is high, 20, 30, 40, single agent pembrolizumab is performing quite well with a hazard ratio of 0.58. Now, when you drill down on that CPS 1 to 19, which is really what we're trying to focus on today, you could see there that for that group, there's still a benefit of pembrolizumab at 10.8 months versus 10.1 months. So those differences were not statistically different, but it does not appear to me when I look at this data that pembrolizumab is an inferior treatment to extreme regimen. The hazard ratio here is 0.86, which is a little bit higher than what you would see with pembro plus chemo. We're gonna show this later, but to me that is still really showing a survival at a median OS that is acceptable at 10.8 months. And to me, making single agent pembrolizumab an option for those patients. So that's, that's really nicely set up to ask now, Jean-Pascal, maybe if you could give a similar view of what does the landscape look like for these various different PDL1 categories when we think about the comparison between pembrolizumab and chemotherapy versus the extreme regimen? Yes, I, I think the first comment that I wish to do, this is uh, subgroup analysis with, uh, in some cases, very low number of patients. So we, we need to, to be careful about uh, this data. But when uh, you had chemotherapy, I'm not too worried indeed. You see that even in patients with CPS zero, uh, the median survival uh, with chemotherapy plus pembrolizumab is okay. It's 11 months. But the key message here is that higher is the CPS, uh, better uh, is the median of our survival. And in patients with CPS uh, 20 or higher, the median survival is 14.7 months. So I think there's probably nothing wrong is, uh, to, to give here chemotherapy plus pembrolizumab in this different subgroup of patients, although pembrolizumab is not probably going to add a lot in patients with CPS zero. Excellent. Thank you for that. Well, carrying on from that, if I may, um, Jean-Pascal, given the fact that you were first author on these um, clarified guidelines um, coming from EHNS, ESMO and ESTRO, Maybe I could ask you just to give us the summary of where we stand at the present time in, in, in terms of the treatment in the first-line setting of relapsed and or metastatic head and neck cancer. Yes, so we, we first divide the patient uh, ex previously exposed uh, within the last six months uh, with platinum therapy. And uh, if patients did not receive platinum therapy during the last six months and are in first-line, the first thing that we have to do is to measure the PDL1 expression on the tumor. When PDL1 is positive, you can clearly choose between pembrolizumab or pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy. If you don't have access uh, to the staining of PDL1, what indeed should not happen, probably the standard of care, uh, if you will, uh, if you look at the world population, 
is pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy. We believe that if you have no expression of PDL1 as mentioned by CPS, the benefit of adding pembrolizumab is not existing. And so in this case, we recommend uh, the combination of platinum plus cetuximab. For the subgroup of patients exposed to platinum uh, therapy within the last six months, we can recommend nivolumab or pembrolizumab. And in other case, when the patient has been previously exposed to platinum therapy or immunotherapy, I think we can think about taxane, methotrexate, clinical trial, or best supportive care. Things are slightly different, I know, on your side of the Atlantic, Robert. Um, could you give us your view as to, um, as to how you apply um, guidelines that exist in the United States? Yeah, so for the United States, the, the FDA label for pembrolizumab is really for uh, all comers with uh, PDL1 expressing tumors. So any patient with a PDL1 positive tumor can be treated with pembrolizumab as a single agent. Obviously, you have the option of pembro plus chemo. Uh, for all comers, so just like Jean Pascal said, sometimes we are faced with situations where for some reason or another, you cannot get a CPS. The patient was treated as a different hospital. The tissue is not available. You can't have access to the tissue. Uh, the patient needs to be treated quickly. For those patients where you do not have a CPS, then the uh, usual course is to recommend uh, pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy. For those patients where you know the CPS is zero, uh, this is where within label you could give pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy my sense is most people at this stage are using the extreme regimen or a variation of the extreme regimen for those patients leaving immunotherapy or a checkpoint inhibitor for a second line approach likely with a combination therapy or a clinical trial well i'd really like to thank you both for those really helpful insights into where we stand at the present time in terms of making decisions for our patients based around the PDL1 expression within the tumor. And I think what I've heard and what I hope the audience has heard from these presentations are that in that group of patients who have a PDL1 CPS value between 1 and 19, the options exist for the use of single agent pembrolizumab and or pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy. And in the next section, what we're going to explore is some of the decision-making processes that may lead us to make those selections between one, one of those therapies or the other for our patients. With that, I thank you for your attention to this section, and I hope that you will join us in the next second part of this, um, this presentation with my colleagues uh, Jean-Pascal Machiels and Robert Haddad. Thank you. Hello, my name is Kevin Harrington. In this second part, we will talk about predicting which patients are likely to respond to which therapies and how to best stratify our patients and profile them to determine the optimum management strategies for those who fall in the various CPS groupings. Again, I'm joined by my colleagues Robert Haddad and Jean-Pascal Machiels. So, Robert, in the first instance, what I'd like to think about is the patient factors that you consider when you have a patient in front of you in your office and you're trying to make treatment decisions, what are the patient factors that you're looking for in particular? Yes, thank you, Kevin. So this is really an important question that obviously we deal with every day in our clinics. You know, I look at 
patients with recurrent and metastatic head and neck cancer, and I look at really the patient-related factors and then the tumor-related factors. So the patient-relating factors are, you know, what type of shape the patient is, what we call the ECOG performance status, if the patient is fit enough for intervention, uh, how active are they, what type of comorbidities they have, is the patient have COPD, emphysema, is the patient is on oxygen, does the patient have a feeding tube, can they swallow pills. Uh, also, obviously, the HPV status is important, and this is uh, because HPV is a, a very significant prognostic indicator. And also, we need to keep in mind that for some of these patients, there still exists a curative intent approach with either surgery or re-irradiation, and those have to be considered for some of those patients as part of a multidisciplinary clinics to make sure that, for example, patients with oligometastatic disease and HPV-related head and neck cancer can still be treated in a curative intent with an operation or radiofrequency ablation or cryotherapy, things like that we would want to really consider. So those are the patient-related related factors. And then the tumor-related factors, where is the primary site? Are we dealing with a local recurrence, regional recurrence, or distant recurrence? And what is really important to uh, try to understand from examining the patient, looking at their scans, is the disease burden. Are we looking at someone with an isolated two or three lung mats that is completely asymptomatic, has a full-time job, and really fully functioning, or it's a patient who has significant disease burden with widespread metastatic liver bone metastases that is symptomatic, for that patient, there might be a need for an immediate response and a quick response. So I try to put all of that information, patient factors, tumor factors in context to try to come up with the best treatment plan for the patient. Thanks, Robert. Maybe uh, Jean-Pascal, I can ask you to enlarge upon this question of, of tumor burden. Um, so in terms of tumor sites of metastatic disease um, or indeed of recurrence, what are the areas that you're particularly concerned about, for instance, um, and which areas would make you feel more or less inclined to feel that this patient may benefit from an immunotherapy approach? Yeah, so like Robert, we will evaluate the patient in the multidisciplinary tool and we will assess the tumor burden and also the, the symptomatic uh, level of the disease. So if the patient has eye symptom, we need a rapid tumor shrinkage. Uh, if the patient is also at risk of developing a complication, for example, if you have a recurrent disease in the neck and the patient has pain or the patient has a, a risk of, on the airway, uh, for this group of patients, we will more in favor of giving chemotherapy. Also, if the patient has huge distance metastasis with lung liver metastasis, we will also uh, be inclined more to give a chemotherapy uh, in this group of patients. So, so indeed, we try to evaluate the need for the patient to have a rapid tumor shrinkage because this is going to influence the treatment that, that we will give. Uh, also, it's important to assess the previous treatment that the patient received uh, is the patient already received platinum therapy? If he received platinum therapy, uh, he, he, did he respond to platinum therapy along? Uh, this is also uh, a very important uh, to decide which treatment we will give. And Robert, maybe I could just come back to you and ask, 
Do you try to observe the patient for any length of time rather than instituting treatment quickly in order to gauge the rate of progression of the disease or is that a risky strategy? If, if I am convinced that the patient has metastatic disease and or recurrent disease, I usually would not observe that patient and I would usually initiate therapy. But then the intensity of the therapy, as Jean-Pascal has mentioned, would vary for the patient who has low burden disease, asymptomatic, from that patient who has significant disease burden and symptomatic. But in my practice, I do not usually observe patients when I know that there is metastatic disease. There are situations where there are, for example, small lung nodules that are too small to biopsy. You're not sure what they represent. You might bring that patient back in six to eight weeks, do another CT scan, uh, and then see if that has changed or not. But that's really the only situation where I might observe someone uh, versus if I know they have metastatic disease, biopsy proven or not, I'm usually, uh, I really want to start treatment. Excellent, thank you. So again, maybe I could just ask you to carry on and I'll, then I'll perhaps come to Jean-Pascal. But Robert, we've heard a good deal and we've been speaking earlier on about the pdl one level and its role in determining treatment approaches for patients. What about new biomarkers? So what do we have on the horizon? What do we have potentially to use in the clinic? Can you talk us through some of the discussions? We hear the words tumor mutational burden. We heard, hear about gene expression profiling. Can you tell us how those may be used or indeed are being used already in the clinic? So really, uh, uh, Kevin, the short answer is, you know, these markers, we have studied them, uh, and you were both part of the same studies we all have done with pembrolizumab, nivolumab, durvalumab, where we looked at these biomarkers, and they seem to be helpful in predicting response to immunotherapy, those inflammatory markers, gene expression profile, tumor mutational burden. Uh, so they, they can be predictive of response to immunotherapy, but at this stage, really, they have not made it to mainstream clinics, and they are not routinely used to decide on how we treat patients. So I do not use those markers. Uh, we only use them as part of defined clinical trials where uh, they are measured and followed. Uh, so in 2023, the most important biomarker remains that CPS, that combined positive score, which as we showed before on the Keynote 48, is a very important biomarker to help us really decide on how we treat patients in 2023. Obviously, HPV also is a very important prognostic biomarker, albeit it does not really play a big role in how we, whether we use immunotherapy or not. There's some data to suggest that it might or might not be helpful. But again, it's not a biomarker we use to decide on using immunotherapy or not, but it's an important prognostic biomarker telling me that patients with an HPV-related head and neck cancer are likely to do much better than those with a smoking-related head and neck cancer, even with metastatic disease. Excellent. Maybe I could just move the discussion on a little there. Jean-Pascal, we've heard a good deal about the CPS, and Robert's just spoken about that. But we've also heard, and you presented actually earlier, that the TPS was used as a stratification factor in 048. So could you perhaps talk us through what is the difference between CPS and TPS? Um, and I guess the question is, why, why do we have these two different values? 
Um, and why is it that the CPS might be the value that we're using now in the first line setting as being the one that is most predictive of how we should be treating our patients? So the TPS is indeed to measure the PDL1 expression taking into account only the tumor cells. So it's a positive PDL1 tumor cells divided by uh, the total number of viable tumor cells. And the combined positive score will take into account what I think is very important, the other, in, other inflammatory cells like lymphocyte and macrophage. And so it will be PDL1 positive tumor cells, lymphocyte, macrophage, divided by the number of tumor cells. So I think CPS uh, is more important, particularly in the first line treatment of patient uh, with recurrent disease, because as you have seen in the previous uh, presentation, uh, we have shown that uh, the predictive value of CPS, or, or at least the probability that you have a longer survival under uh, immunotherapy, is linked to CPS. So median survival was around 14 months with CPS 20 or higher, around uh, 12 months with CPS higher than one, and around 10 months when you have CPS zero. So it's probably the best predictive marker that we have today, although it's not perfect. Thank you for that very nice explanation of the current situation. I'd like to remind the audience that in addition to the information we've heard in head and neck cancer, there are a number of other anti-PD-1 and anti-PDL-1 therapies for which there are companion diagnostic platforms using different antibodies and different diagnostic platforms. It's important to remember that for patients with relapsed and or metastatic head and neck cancer, the companion diagnostic is based around the 22C3 clone and also the PharmDX or DACO platform. This is the only one approved for the use of guidance for selection of patients with relapsed and or metastatic head and neck cancer. We've also seen, and again, maybe I could ask you to comment on this briefly, Robert. We've also seen that for some of the studies that have been done with other antibodies, indeed combinations, for instance, the anti-PD-L1 antibody Devalumab in combination with the anti-CTLA-4 antibody Tremolimumab in some of the studies that have been conducted, including, um, for instance, the Kestrel study recently um, published, but also um, the hawk, the eagle, and the condor studies. We've seen that combination, and there's been some suggestion that maybe we could use a circulating estimate of tumor mutational burden in order to determine um, the likelihood of deriving benefit. Is that something that you see as being useful in the clinic? Uh, yeah, thank you, Kevin, for the question. But what I would say is, you know, uh, this test could be logistically easier because it's a blood-based test. You know, there's a lot of talk in this day and age about liquid biopsies and the ease of performing those types of, of diagnostic uh, interventions. Uh, it does not inquire uh, getting tissue on the patient. But again, the same comment I had made before about GEP and uh, tissue tumor burden, uh, we are not using those tests as routine in the clinic today, uh, but there's definitely interesting data about their ability to be predictive of response to immunotherapy in head and neck cancer and in other cancers. So I wouldn't be surprised to see those in the future being more and more integrated 
in how we select patients for treatment, but they are not ready for prime time in 2023. Thanks, Robert. And again, um, I thank you both for your useful insights in this section of the presentation. I'm going to just give a few um, comments around takeaways from this that I think that the audience will be, um, will be uh, well advised to remember. So we heard that when assessing the patient in the clinic or in the office, we should be thinking about patient-related factors. Uh, we should be thinking about tumor-related factors. We should specifically be thinking about aspects of tumor burden, symptom burden, site of disease, the rapidity with which the disease is progressing, and the likelihood of its being able to cause um, problematic symptoms to patients, which in turn dictates the rate at which we would ideally wish to see a response. Patients with high symptom and high tumor burdens demanding, in fact, a more rapid response and a decision to lead to that. We've also heard about biomarkers, and again, we've reinforced the centrality, the importance of PDL1 as the biomarker of choice for selection of patients for treatment with relapsed and or metastatic first-line squamous carcinoma of the head and neck. And we've touched upon the possibility of other biomarkers, including tumor mutational burden in the tumor or in the circulation, the gene expression profile, but we again have reinforced the fact that that is not yet a standard of care. So with that, I thank you again for your attention, um, and I invite you to join us for the last part of this presentation, where we will discuss interesting cases and we will discuss some of the practical application of the information that we have already presented. Thank you. Hello, I'm Kevin Harrington, and in this last part, we will discuss patient cases, those with recurrent and or metastatic squamous cell carcinoma of the head and neck, and how we should be managing these patients when the CPS is between 1 and 19. Once again, I'm joined by colleagues Robert Haddad and Jean-Pascal Machiels. So I'd like to present to you the first case. It's a 71-year-old male, ECOG performance status of zero, a lifelong never smoker, has a relevant past medical history of ulcerative colitis diagnosed at the age of 54 and is on maintenance therapy with methylprednisolone. The patient was treated with a tonsillectomy and partial excision of the base of tongue with modified radical neck dissection for a diagnosis of squamous cell carcinoma representing a P16 positive, HPV16 positive, PT2, PN2B in the old staging system, CM0, squamous carcinoma. The resection is R0. In the neck, there is extra nodal extension of disease representing stage 3 disease. On pathology, the CPS value is 2. The patient received adjuvant concomitant chemoradiation to appropriate radiation doses and a cumulative platinum dose of 260 milligrams per meter squared. Regrettably, the patient experienced progression of disease within three months of this therapy, at which time a PET-CT scan showed mediastinal and right hilar lymphadenopathy with a maximum nodal, nodal dimension of 2.2 centimeters. In addition, there's a small nodule in the right lower lung with a maximum diameter of 8 millimeters. At bronchoscopic sampling of the nodal tissue, there was a confirmation of a diagnosis of squamous carcinoma 
and the disease is P16 positive. The patient is asymptomatic with normal social activities. So Jean-Pascal, maybe I can come to you first and ask you how you would approach the management of this patient, please. I think that there are three important factors to take into account. So first, the patient progressed quite rapidly after platinum therapy. So it means that I'm not in favor of starting platinum therapy again. The second important stuff is the patient has a CPSA2, but it's not negative, but it's not very high. Because we are all too thinking to, to give immunotherapy to this patient. But yes, in this antecedent, his past medical history, uh, ulcerative colitis. So I think it's important to assess this colitis. Is the patient symptomatic uh, of this? Uh, is it active or not? It's not, for me, an absolute contraindication to give pembrolizumab uh, monotherapy in this patient. Uh, we know that for some of the patients, it, it will be okay. The risk of ever having a flare-up of this colitis is around 50% because the patient has immunosuppressive therapy. So clearly something that we can discuss with the patient uh, if he, he wished to, to take this, this risk. But I will not exclude uh, immunotherapy directly for, for this patient. Also because anti-PD-1 therapy, they don't have a high risk of uh, autoimmune uh, colitis. So something to discuss with, with the patient uh, in this indication. The reason why I'm, I'm thinking about immunotherapy is also because the patient is asymptomatic with a low disease burden. So if the patient would have no colitis, I would go directly for immunotherapy in monotherapy. Thanks, um, Jean-Pascal. Robert, do you concur with those thoughts? Are there any differences that you would have? Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, to me, it's not an absolute contraindication. If the patient is clinically stable, they are on low-dose steroids, we're not given the dose of steroid they are on here, and the patient is not actively, has colitis with diarrhea and bloody diarrhea, I would not consider this to be a contraindication to single-agent uh, immunotherapy. Obviously, there, is, there are data with pembrolizumab and nivolumab for these patients um, who progress within six months. Obviously, we need to remember this type of patient would not have been enrolled in the Keynote 048 study because it's within six months of completing curative therapy chemoradiation. So here, as Jean-Pascal mentioned, chemotherapy with cisplatinum would not be a good option. If we cannot give immunotherapy for this patient, then I find myself going to a taxane, for example. If, for example, this patient has active colitis or they cannot receive immunotherapy for some reason, then I would probably go to a taxane as my next line of therapy. So that's very interesting to hear that both of you would be prepared to essentially apply the data from Checkmate 141 where patients were eligible to receive immunotherapy effectively as first-line therapy if they had progressed for Checkmate 141 any time after completion of chemoradiation and in the Keynote 040 study between three and six months after completion of chemoradiation those patients were eligible. So that's an interesting management decision, um, and thank you for that. So I'd now like to present, if I may, um, a second case. And maybe if I, um, I start now with, with you, Robert. So here we have a 58-year-old male, again, excellent performance status, ECOG zero, an ex-smoker. 
Past medical history is that of hypertension. Patient is moderately well controlled on an ACE inhibitor. He has a past history of hepatitis B. We'll return to that. Um, and he has presented with an ulcerated lesion at the base of the tongue affecting the right tonsil with lymph nodes in the right side of the neck in level 2A that measure up to 5 centimeters in diameter. The staging investigations, including MRI and PET, um, PET scanning, indicate those primary lesions, but they also show multiple bilateral lung nodules, delivering a final stage of CT4A, N2B, M1 disease. And on this occasion, the CPS is 4. And again, Robert, I invite you to give us your thought processes around selecting patient, uh, therapy for this patient, please. Yeah, this is an interesting case. So obviously, this is different than the prior case in that this is a de novo metastatic head and neck cancer case. This patient is previously untreated. He's young. He's only 58. He has an excellent performance status and relatively healthy with mild hypertension and prior hepatitis. Now, this patient has a what I would consider a significant degree of disease burden. He's got a large tongue-based mass. He's got nodes. He has moderate dysphagia. So I'm thinking I want to try to avoid getting into a feeding tube with this patient. I want to make him feel better quickly. Uh, and again, his CPS is on the lower side. It's four. I would be thinking that for this patient, I'm going to like to use chemotherapy plus a checkpoint inhibitor. So this is the type of patient that from the Keynote 048 study, I'll be using a platinum 5-FU with pembrolizumab because I do want a quick response on this patient. I do want to make him feel better quickly so that he doesn't get into needing a feeding tube, for example, and further weight loss, etc., etc. Uh, so platinum 5-FU, pembro would be where I'm going. Obviously, we have some recent data from ASCO about the platinum taxane, Pembro, a different question, different discussion, which many of us are using now to avoid having to put a port and give 5-FU. But I would say the, if I'm going to use the word standard answer here, what I would be going to is a platinum 5-FU pembrolizumab for this patient because of him being symptomatic, multiple sites of disease, high disease burden, and the CPS of four, I would not want to use just Pembro, but rather Pembro plus chemo. Excellent. Thank you. And I, I think I would concur entirely with those thoughts. I'd like to come back to you, if I may, Jean-Pascal. I signposted the fact that I was going to come back to hepatitis. Um, could you just tell me, um, how does the prior history of hepatitis impact your decision around treatment? And perhaps if this patient had any evidence of suspicion of active hepatitis, what would your thought processes be there, please? I think that's an important point to take into account. So we'll certainly uh, do uh, the HPS antigen and also look at the, the DNA uh, of uh, the virus in the blood and ask advice from our hepatologists if it was positive. There are some data suggesting that if you have an active hepatitis B, the risk of liver toxicity uh, is a little higher. So the risk of having a grade three or a grade four, but you can probably mitigate this risk by antiviral therapy. So I think here we need to have the, the advice of the specialist, of the liver specialist, if, if needed. If clearly the patient has no uh, 
active uh, hepatitis, hepatitis B, I will go uh, like the, with the proposition you mentioned, chemotherapy plus pembrolizumab. Even if the patient has active hepatitis, uh, it will be probably not, in my opinion, an absolute contraindication uh, to the treatment, but we need to, to ask the advice of the hepatologist about uh, the treatment of this patient. Excellent. Thank you for those very useful thoughts. Um, and so I now come to the, um, the third case, if I may. So this is a younger patient. This is a 41-year-old female. Here we see that she has an ECOG performance status of two, a lifelong never smoker. And the pertinent medical history here is that of some mild mental impairment, um, some anxiety and depression. She has arterial hypertension and a polyarticular juvenile idiopathic arthritis that has been in place since her childhood, requiring maintenance therapy with methylprednisolone at a dose of four milligrams. Her head and neck specific diagnosis is that of a grade two squamous carcinoma of the oral cavity, for which she's undergone resection, revealing a PT4B, PN2B with two of 55 lymph nodes involved, but no extracapsular extension, and an M0 tumor. Subsequently, she went on to receive adjuvant concomitant chemo radiation with appropriate doses of radiation and a total dose of 200 milligrams per meter squared of cisplatin during that therapy. Regrettably, she has developed progressive disease three months after completion of adjuvant chemo radiation and is symptomatic with mild dyspnea and a chest CT scan has been performed with evidence of a left pleural effusion, progression of disease at the lung and a bone lesion within the sternum. So again, perhaps this time I could come to you, um, Jean-Pascal, to give me your thoughts as to how you would manage this. And I should mention importantly that this patient has a CPS of zero, so a negative CPS value. Yeah, this is a sad history. Uh, so again, this patient is progressing within three months of platinum therapy. She's symptom, uh, low CPS. So I don't think this patient will benefit uh, from immunotherapy. In addition, you have the, the arthritis. Uh, although, as already mentioned, autoimmune diseases are not an absolute contraindication. This make a lot to start uh, with immunotherapy uh, alone. So here, I think I will uh, try uh, to give uh, chemotherapy, and I will probably go for taxane plus or minus cetuximab or, or cetuximab alone or taxane alone. You can you can discuss it, uh, but clearly I will go for chemotherapy. Be aware that the prognosis of this patient is not uh, excellent. It's poor prognosis since uh, the patient is progressing uh, quite rapidly on chemoradiation. Robert, do you have similar views around the, first of all, the poor prognosis of this patient, and secondly, around the therapeutic choices that Jean-Pascal has just advanced? No, a complete agreement. Obviously, this is a tough case because patient is only 41, poor performance status of two, so this patient really uh, is struggling, rapid disease progression, symptomatic pleural effusion. I'm reaching out to really a clinical trial here. If there's no clinical trial, consider chemotherapy with a taxane would be where I would go. I don't really think this patient would benefit 
from a checkpoint inhibitor at this stage of her care. Yeah, and regrettably, I think I have to agree with you there. And I think to the point of clinical trial entry, I think this is going to be extremely challenging in respect of the exclusion, inclusion and exclusion criteria for, for many of the clinical trials that we look at. And indeed, I would not, unfortunately, see this, this young woman as a good candidate for such a trial. So I thank you for those really interesting presentations around those three cases. As final comments, I return again, maybe just to reiterate the clinical practice guidelines that have been presented so eloquently earlier on in this, um, in this presentation by Jean-Pascal Machiels. So again, as he rehearsed with us, the central decision being around um, the time since prior platinum therapy, if the patient has not received platinum therapy during the last six months, and has a PDL1 positive tumor, then the options exist for pembrolizumab monotherapy or pembrolizumab plus platinum 5-FU based therapy. And you heard how those can be applied within some of the cases we've just discussed. Um, if the PDL1 assessment has not been carried out, then you do have the option of pembrolizumab plus platinum 5-FU, essentially on an all comers basis. And in patients, um, where the tumor is PDL1 negative, the recommendation is not for an immune therapy based approach, but rather for um, a cytotoxic chemotherapy and/or cetuximab based approach. In those patients who have been pretreated with platinum-based chemotherapy within the last six months um, and who are immunotherapy naive, the message that came over loud and clear was that rechallenging with platinum was not a good option. For a number of these patients, based around data um, from the Checkmate 141 study and also construed from the Keynote 040 study, there is an option to consider them for nivolumab or pembrolizumab as single agent therapies. And where that, it, that is not appropriate or where the patient has had prior immunotherapy, then taxane, methotrexate or cetuximab based monotherapy um, or best supportive care indeed for those with poor performance status would be the appropriate way to go. So with that, um, I would like to thank my colleagues for their wonderful presentations this, uh, in this session. Um, I would like to thank you for your attention um, and I look forward to seeing you at a future event. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.